You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. We're going to be looking at the second half of Revelation chapter 13, but I want to read the entire chapter just to set the context once again for what we covered last week and what we'll be looking at today. It says in verse 1, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to, the, to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he must go. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Last week we said that Satan deceives the nations and persecutes the church through evil governments and leaders and will eventually empower a final antichrist that will uh, be unable to defeat true Christians. We said this antichrist concept that we hear a lot about uh, is a spirit that's always at work and will probably manifest itself personally in the form of a leader who opposes God and his people. So all false teachings, all agendas against Christ, any attempt to divert worship from Christ, to tear down a good theology of Christ is considered antichrist theology, antichrist spirit. That's what John says in First and Second John, okay? What I think we see in Scripture and what we looked at last week is that there does seem to be this uh, expectation outside of Revelation even, of a, a one-figure individual who will come and embody evil, uh, not Satan incarnate, but will come and be evil uh, and will uh, lead a lot of people into to gross deception, uh, will persecute the church maybe in ways that it's never been before, um, leading up to the return of Christ. So last week we said in anticipation of that, we need to be prepared for deception and greater deception to, to come. Uh, that Satan's going to be deceptive in his performance, in his power, in his protection. We see these people crying out, who is like the beast? Uh, Who can fight against it? Um, So they've bought into this lie that there's nothing greater than the beast um, and and have ignored Christ and what Christ revealed about himself. Um, We also said that we should be encouraged by Satan's limitations and our guaranteed victory, that what we see is that Satan's time is limited in being able to do this. It's only for 42 months and that he can only effectively deceive those who do not belong to God. But it doesn't doesn't deter us from from having a responsibility to to listen, to be willing to suffer, to really grow up in our theology so that we're prepared uh, for when this comes. All right? That leads us into the second part. So first part, we're talking heavy about the Antichrist and this military-type government uh, that, that persecutes the church and really leads people into the deception of worshiping this figure, uh, what we find here in the, the second half is what we call the false prophet who will point people to this antichrist type figure, all right? From a summary sentence standpoint, believers have an urgent responsibility to prepare for increasing deception 
and persecution in order to persevere in the faith and avoid apostasy. Believers have an urgent responsibility to prepare for increasing deception and persecution in order to persevere in the faith and avoid apostasy. For our kids, we must prepare for bad teaching and hard circumstances to help us trust Jesus during those times. 2 Thessalonians 2 talks about this great time of deception that will come prior to Jesus returning where there will be a great apostasy. There will be people who have called themselves Christians, who have attended church, who have joined churches, who have been a part of churches that will walk away from the faith, right? They will be tricked and deceived into this false teaching and they will wander away and they will give their allegiance to something else. We want to be on guard and be prepared for that. Jesus talks about it in a passage that we've looked at already, Matthew 24, verse 24, this time of, of great deception. It says, For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Jesus cautioning us, cautioning us to be prepared and ready for great deception that is to come. That passage in 2 Thessalonians 2 The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power, false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Um, This great rebellion Paul talks about comes, the man of lawlessness being revealed. Um, It's important for us. It's urgent for us to understand these things and to, while we maybe understand that we can't answer all the questions, we do have enough knowledge i think enough of a basis here to really give us some things to wrestle through to work through to prepare for these times that are to come from an introductory standpoint chapter 13 reminds us that satan will use governments religious systems and economic structures to deceive the ungodly and to persecute the church that's what we see here in revelation 13 overall we see governmental powers that can persecute the church We see religious systems here at the end of chapter 13 where uh, great deception has set in and there's false worship, there's idolatry, there's a worship of a great image. We see that at the end, if you're not willing to worship it, then you're not able to buy and sell. And so obviously economics is affected by your willingness to obey or not to obey these structures that may come in the future. And I told you earlier, this is where the idea of a one-world government, a one-world economy, a one-world religion typically springs up from. The chapter, I think, we have to understand it in the context of the original readers, okay? So while this, I think this is describing a time in the future, it's also found some prior fulfillment in the past, maybe specifically in the ways that it's written, meaning that it may be fulfilled differently in the future, okay? Here's what I mean by that. When the readers of of Revelation first get this letter, what they are going through is a a one-world government, right? The Roman Empire is controlling most everything that they're aware of. The local priests are demanding that they worship the emperor, okay? In the, um, in the, uh, the temples that are local to them, they have images set up of the emperor that they are called to worship. And if they don't worship it, it leads to persecution. It can lead to death. We've already seen prior, uh, prior to this in Revelation when we were reading the seven letters to the churches that um, there's some economic issues that some of these churches are enduring because they won't align themselves with some of these trade guilds and give themselves over to the emperor worship. They can't buy and sell and trade like they need to, right? It's even been written outside of the Bible in other sources, other historical sources during that time that these priests had found ways to trick the people into thinking that these images had come to life, right? Through ventriloquism, through trickery, like they were making it look like these images were talking and coming to life, okay? So we read this and we're like, man, this is not happening now. This has to happen in the future, right? Like there has to be this time where this great image comes on the scene and we're told we have to worship it or we can't buy and sell and it's going to look like it comes to life and talks and speaks and demands worship. And that may very well happen in the future. But we're definitely very quick to press that into the future because that's not happening right now. If we were in the original context of when this was written, we would have read this and said, that's happening right now, right? Like that's happening right now. There's one government that demands our worship. If we don't worship it, we can be put to death for it. We can't buy, sell, and trade. 
Um, we have images that are being set up in our, in our cities that we're called, called to worship. Sometimes on Saturday night, it gets weird down there, and it's like that thing is talking and speaking. Like they would have, they would have understood this. This would have resonated with them. Does this happen again in the future? And it, it, it very well may. Does it happen again in the future and look way different than this? That's very possible too, right? It may very well be that it was written to connect with the original readers, something that they would understand, and then in the future, it's going to look drastically different than this. I don't know. I can tell you that if it looks drastically different than this, it's going to be far worse than this, right? Far more deceiving than this, harder persecution than this, okay? But I do think it's important to see this and see chapter 13 in the way that it's written. It was written for a group of people that were going through something very similar at that time, okay? The land beast parallels the beast of Daniel chapter 8, verse 3. If you want to look at that up on your own time, there's a ram with two horns that's mentioned there. The land beast is later identified as the false prophet, okay? So that's why we're going to call him the false prophet because in Revelation chapter 16, verse 13, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Okay, so we see that that unholy trinity mentioned again in 16, but here that second beast is referred to as the false prophet. In Revelation 19, verse 20, says, um, the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. Okay, so there he's very clearly defined as the one who was responsible for doing certain things that caused people to get that mark of the beast. He's identified as the false prophet. And then in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, um, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, so land beast equals false prophet. We can use those names interchangeably, all right? He plays a religious role by leading people to worship the sea beast, who we identified most likely last week as the Antichrist. This is what the Holy Spirit does on the other side of things, okay? When we talk about Jesus coming as our Savior, and then we talk about him vacating the earth from his bodily uh, perspective, right? We talk about the Holy Spirit coming on the scene. What's the Holy Spirit's purpose? Man, it's to point people to Jesus, right? Like the Holy Spirit shows up, and you can read about that in John chapter 16, verses 7 through 15. Holy Spirit's purpose, point people to Jesus, right? Like cause people to worship Jesus. Holy Spirit quickens us, awakens us to spiritual things so that we were dead in our sins, now we're alive to Christ, right? So that's what the Holy Spirit does. Holy Spirit communicates truth to us, takes the spoken word, the written word, penetrates our hearts with that message, radically opens us up to the gospel to where we now believe in Jesus. What's the false prophet do? The very same thing from the other perspective. False prophet does things, orchestrates things to trick people who are already lost. Okay, he doesn't, doesn't cause people to lose their salvation. He takes people who are already lost. He quickens them. He enlightens them to something that is deception right? They buy into it. They begin to worship this false image, okay? So again, I think it's important to see why, why, is, um, why is John writing in such a way? Well, he's writing in terms that we understand. He, he's, he's comparing and contrasting what we understand about Jesus and the gospel and the church and how these things function. He's showing it from the evil perspective, okay? Um, the land beast plays the opposite role of the church, okay? So we've seen him playing the opposite role of the Holy Spirit, He plays the opposite role of the church. Think about it. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 12, says um, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Right? Like if we wanted to summarize that, um, we're saying that that the, 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 the false prophet, the second beast, he's empowered by his master right? Like he, his master is the Antichrist who answers to the dragon, right? He's empowered by his master. He's empowered by his master to preach a message to draw people's attention to the resurrected Antichrist. And he's been given the ability to do signs and wonders to prove that message. That's what the, that's what the church is, okay? The, the church is empowered by our master, right? Acts chapter 1 
verse 1, as Jesus gets ready to ascend into heaven and to leave. Um, Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Right? Jesus has already died. He's rose again. They're ready to go. Like They're ready to start this. He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus says, I'm promising you power to spread my message. We've been empowered to persuade others to worship our master, our Jesus, based on his resurrection, right? Acts chapter 4. We've talked about this before. What was the message of the early church? That Jesus is our Savior, and the Jews and the Romans killed him, but he came back to life. He is resurrected, right? Paul talks about the fact that without the resurrection, we don't have a message. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They arrested them. They put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. We've been empowered by our master to preach a message about a resurrection, okay? We, uh, we read about the signs and the wonders that were attached to that. We, we tend to believe that those things are, are, are typically past for the most part. I think God can still do some things and, and work some signs and wonders in places where the gospel is yet to go. But in Acts chapter 2, verse um, 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. You skip ahead to Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. You skip ahead to Acts chapter 15, in verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. You skip ahead to Hebrews. Chapter 2, verse 4. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit and distributed according to his will. And I want you to see what's happening here at the back half of chapter 13 is that we are seeing a satanic type movement that parallels what's been happening with the local church and the gospel for centuries. Okay? It's the idea that we as the, as the disciples of Jesus have been empowered by our master to spread a message about the resurrection and when needed and when necessary, signs and wonders have been attached to that to validate the message. What we're going to see before Christ comes is this movement by the false prophet, the Antichrist, to spread a false message of deception meant to draw people's attention to a false resurrection, Right? And it's meant to be done with signs and wonders to draw the attention to attract people to this message. The land beast plays the opposite role of the church. We also see at the back half of chapter 13, the mark of the beast. Something that gets a lot of attention and a lot of things have been written about it. Um, it, it's, It's given to us, Revelation, in the context of the emperor's seal on business contracts and the impression made upon coins during that time. When people thought about the mark of the emperor, it was thought about in terms of uh, contractual obligations. It was thought about in terms of the image of the emperor being pressed upon the coins. What is the mark of the beast, and what does it look like, and, and how does one receive it? I think it has to be understood in contrast to Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. Right? Far too much has been written about the mark of the beast, and far too little has been written about the the mark of being a, a Christ follower, the seal of being a Christ follower. Revelation 14, 1. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Again, growing up, I was always taught about the mark of the beast. I was fearful that I was going to take it by accident and not really realize what it was. 
never really heard about the seal placed upon Christians and their foreheads, right? We think about the mark of the beast being applied to the forehead of unbelievers, but we also see the parallel, this idea that, that Christ's name is written on the foreheads of Christians. Now, do we really believe that Jesus' name is going to be written on the forehead of Christians right before Jesus comes back? No, like we understand that to be an invisible, spiritual-type seal. It's probably best to understand the mark of the beast in a similar format, all right? Um, the hand and the forehead are, are kind of identified as the place for this. This is seen as the ideological place of commitment in Scripture. If you jump back to uh, Exodus chapter 13, again, understanding the context of how these readers would have understood Revelation originally, in Exodus chapter 13, verse 9, the children of Israel are told, it shall be to you a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Okay, the idea that, that God wants our minds and our hands, our thoughts and our deeds to remember him. But if you jump ahead to Deuteronomy um, chapter 6, verse 8, talking about the law of God being written down in small forms. It says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Okay, this idea of committing God's word to our thoughts and our actions. It's where the Jewish people even took it so far as to put the word of God around their heads. Right? They have these, these ways of doing that through these little boxes. They'd, they'd wrap it around their heads. They'd wrap it around their arms. Like they wanted to take this literally. Like we want God's word stamped upon us. Okay, so when we think of the mark of the beast as we read through this, uh, think of it more in terms of, of a spiritual idea versus a literal idea because, again, the seal of a Christian is probably understood that way. Um, a lot of people speculate here about what's called, uh, I think you pronounce it gematria. It's the idea that at that time, uh, the letters of the alphabet had numbers assigned to them. And so the idea is if you can figure out you can figure out who the mark of the beast applies to or who the Antichrist is if you can kind of work back from this number 666 and figure out who it applies to by using the letters of the alphabet and the numbers that they represent, okay? So most people believe, or a lot of people that do this believe that this uh, is talking about uh, Nero. Problem is this theory didn't even pop up till the 1830s. Like early church fathers didn't believe this about Nero, that the 666 was in conjunction with him. But if you take his name... If you add a title to it, and if you change his spelling a little bit, then you can force it to be 666. But honestly, that's what everybody does when they try to use this system, and you can almost force anybody to be the Antichrist. Okay? Last week, I told you that even Ronald Reagan has been accused of this, um, and, and one of the main reasons is because if you take uh, Ronald Wilson Reagan, it's got six letters in it, all three of his names. Okay? So... People want to press and push, and if you do so, you can press and push just about anybody into this system because, again, the formula has been, um, uh, see, if you can't make it work with the original name, add a title to the name. If that doesn't work, change the language, work between Latin, Hebrew, Greek until it works. If that doesn't work, then, like I said, try to find an alternate spelling that would allow the system to work. So, Again, God's probably not calling us to implement this system to figure out the mark of the beast and who it applies to. It's probably meant to be more understood symbolically, okay? The idea here, and if you take Jesus' name and do this, you come out with 888, okay? The number seven is used in scriptures, particularly in Revelation, to mean completion, to mean perfection. So what you have the picture of Jesus being, almost being more than perfection, and what you have the 666 being is the, the incompleteness being highlighted of mankind. One commentator even said it's the, um, it's, the complete, it's the completeness of sinful incompleteness. It's the idea that it's as, it's as, uh, it's as sinful and incomplete as possible without being the number seven. Um, it even highlights the idea that man was created on the sixth day of creation. I think the big thing that I want to stress upon you with the mark of the beast is that I don't think you need to fret and worry when new technology comes out, that you're in jeopardy of taking the mark of the beast, okay? Because what I think is very clear from chapter 13 is that this is not an economical decision. It's a religious decision, okay? 
Like people want to say, man, when credit cards came out, like this is the mark of the beast. And then you always get these articles sent to you by somebody where there's this technology where they're going to stick a chip in people's hands. So now you don't have to carry your debit cards anymore, right? Like, like if that technology comes out, like that may be really neat to not have to carry our debit cards anymore. And people can't steal that stuff. We don't have to carry wallets anymore, okay? Unless that thing is attached to, hey, you take this, you worship the beast, then you're not going to accidentally take the mark of the beast and then have to panic later and say, man, I wish I knew what I was doing. Okay, this is not an economical thing. This is a religious decision, okay? By doing this, you are committing yourself to something that's very open, okay? It's not, it's not hidden. You know what you're doing. You are committing yourself to this type of worship, to this type of following, okay? So I don't think you have to fret and worry about whether or not you've got the mark of the beast or not, Okay? All right, we're about to jump into the text, and I want to give you some, some, some real clear, tangible things that we can, we can know. I will tell you, and, and this sounds kind of funny, but, but, but I am serious. I think that um, if you want to see this kind of acted out, like you can watch like the Left Behind movies and, and kind of see this, this rise and fall of power and stuff. But, man, I was really thinking through, there are a ton of parallels to this, what we're seeing in Revelation 13, uh, to some of the Star Wars movies. But there really is. Like, you, you go back and watch the Star Wars movies, and you see deception that really sets in in those first three prequel movies as the emperor rises to power and is able to deceive and, and draw the, the attention of people in that galaxy to him. He sets up the empire as kind of being the savior of the galaxy. Like, the empire is supposed to be able to bring peace. It does so through persecution. It does so through oppression. But it's kind of pitched as, I mean, this is a good thing. The empire is a good thing. I was even thinking, like, in the end of, of Return of the Jedi, like what we're going to see here in Revelation 13 is that deception is used, and when deception doesn't work, persecution is used, right? Like, hey, I'm going to do signs and wonders and try to attract you to this message. When that doesn't work, I'll just hurt you. I'll just hurt you, right? Like, I'll throw you in a fiery furnace. Whatever it takes, I will do that to try to draw your allegiance to me. When you see that even in the interaction with Luke Skywalker and the emperor at the end of that movie where, where he's trying to entice him, he's trying to entice him, that doesn't work, then he just says, okay, I'll just, I'll just kill you and then I'll go after your sister, right? Like, like he wants to enrage him and turn his allegiance to him. So I'd prefer you watch those than watch the Left Behind movies because I think there's a lot of good <laughs> illusions, a lot of good illusions in that Star Wars movie, right? Like you even have like Darth Vader kind of acting like that false prophet, like pointing people to the emperor, you should watch the movies. It's good, especially in light of what we're learning about here. All right? All right, let's jump back into uh, what's clear in this passage. Number one, beware. Satan wants to create deception to steal worship. That's what Satan does through the second beast. He wants to create deception in order to steal worship. For our kids, Satan wants to trick us into worshiping him. Right? This beast rises from the earth, has two horns like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. It has all the authority given to it from the beast, first beast. And it makes the earth and the inhabitants worship the first beast by performing great signs, even making fire come down from heaven in front of people. And by the signs that he's allowed to work, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, and they create this image to worship. Right? Beware, Satan wants to create deception to steal worship. For our kids, Satan wants to trick us into worshiping him. Satan starts with false teaching in hopes of impressing the world to serve him. Starts with false teaching in hopes of impressing the world to serve him. He does so, he packages his message in such a way where it looks very good, right? It looks very good. He will appear friendly to hide his true nature. When this beast arises from the earth, it has two horns like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Jesus talking about false teachers. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Man, John takes it a step further and he says, that We're not talking about wolves in sheep's clothing. We're talking about dragons in sheep's clothing here. Right? Like, like, it looks good. It looks like the lamb. Right? Like, every, here's the thing. Every other time you see the word lamb in Revelation, mark it down. It's Jesus. Every other time in Revelation, it's Jesus. This is the only time that it's not. And it is strikingly not Jesus. But it looks very much like him. Right? It, this is the lamb. This is the lamb. He's got authority. He's got power represented through these horns. 
But you know what he speaks? You know what he talks like? He talks like a dragon. He talks like the father of lies, right? And this is, this is deception at its worst here because it's going to look very good, right? It's going to look very good. It's going to be very attractive. It's going to be very attractive, and it's going to be very deadly as well. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 Verse 13, for such men, or let me say verse 12, what I'm doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claims of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. You know, that sounds like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, right? Like they like to pride themselves on, we're basically the same thing. Like you just need to change a little bit of your stuff, right? For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as the apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. This is why I tend to think this is going to look a lot different than how it's written. Because if it looks just like how it's written in Revelation 13, I feel like it's going to be hard to be deceived by it. Right? Like this stuff's been written down for, for hundreds of years for this to start playing out exactly like it's written in Revelation 13, like how's that not going to be hard for us to stand up and say, hey, like we, 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 we know what happens even next. Like wait for this to happen and you'll see that what we have is actually true. And the picture here is that, man, it's going to be so disguised and it's going to look so much like light that it's going to be hard to discern that it's false. The package will hide the true message. He speaks as a dragon, even though he looks like a lamb. Israel was often cautioned about false teachers and the fact that they want them to worship other gods. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 1, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But the prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Man, as God's writing here, Moses is writing this down, like he's saying, hey, there could be people that show up at your doorstep and can do some, some magical type stuff. Like they can come preaching a message and be able to work signs and wonders in front of you. And even if that happens, you don't listen to them if they're trying to detract you to worship something else. Man, you, uh, we, had a, we had a teacher that was confronted by some Mormons that was texting on our group text and was asking some stuff. You know, you, know how you, you know how you get to the bottom line with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons? You keep talking about Jesus because their theology is different about Jesus, right? Like they can talk about the Old Testament. They can talk about the New Testament. They can talk about heaven and hell. They can talk about all that kind of stuff and try to make it look very similar to what we believe. But man, you keep, you keep coming back to Jesus and you're going to find real quick, man, we believe different things about Jesus. Why? Because 1 John and 2 John tell you, how do you find antichrist people? And they don't believe in Jesus the way that we do. Right? Like that's how you determine false teaching. You, you, you make them state claims that they, that they feel about Jesus. And you'll find real quick, this isn't good. I mean, I see what you're doing here. I mean, this is a crazy trick that you have. Like you can do some really crazy signs and wonders, but you don't believe the same things that I do about Jesus. Man, don't discount the fact that Satan has power too and Satan can empower his people to do crazy things, right? Remember, Moses, he's casting down his staff, turns into a snake. The Egyptian, uh, the Pharaoh guys come up and they say, yeah, we can do that too. We can turn water into blood too, right? Because Satan has power and Satan gives his power to, to, to earthly people to try to deceive. Man, don't, don't, don't even be like... What Jesus wants us to know is that, man, if something crazy shows up at your doorstep, doing things that you've never seen or beheld before, you shouldn't be deterred by that. You shouldn't follow after that. If they don't believe Jesus and believe the things that Scripture says about Jesus, you ignore them. And we don't live in a culture where we can kill them. But at that time, like they were supposed to kill them, right? Because they were, they were operating under their own government. We're operating under a government now where we wouldn't have the, the right to do that. But Israel was their own government, and they were told to kill these people, right? And this is also a deterrent so that you didn't become a false teacher, right? Because if I become a false teacher in this government, I will, I will die, right? 
Israel was cautioned about false teachers. The church is cautioned about false teachers in the, uh, coming out in the church, right? We've already seen this in early parts of Revelation with, with, um, with uh, Jezebel kind of popping back up and that idea of Jezebel and, uh, and whatnot. Uh, in, in Matthew 24, Balaam was also mentioned um, in the early part of Revelation as false teachings that were circulating. Back in Matthew 24... Verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. See that no one leads you astray. Right? Going back to our summary sentence, we have an urgent responsibility to prepare for deception so that we're not led astray. I've already told you, you're not going to be led astray if you're a true Christian. If you're a true Christian, you're going to take steps to make sure that you're not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ, and they will lead many astray. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you're not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. They'll deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death, and you will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. Many will fall away, betray one another, hate one another. Many false prophets will arise, lead many astray. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. In Acts chapter 20, Paul talks about his fear of false teachers arising within the church. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Second Peter is another warning to us about false teachers. And here's the thing that I want you to see is that it's very likely this false prophet, this land beast comes from the church, right? Because all these warnings are about false teachers springing up from the local church. Second Peter 2, but false prophets also arise among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Land beasts will appear friendly, to hide his true nature. But number two, the land beast will impress with signs to hide his true agenda. Man, you read Revelation 13 and you can't help but see that this presentation is going to be powerful and alluring. He's going to perform great signs. Now, is fire literally going to come out of heaven when this false prophet calls for it? Possibly. Possibly. I think it's important to note, though, remember when we talked about the two witnesses back in Revelation 11? Remember we said that they breathed fire out of their mouth? But we said, that's not going to happen. Like that, That's got to be a, a picture of them proclaiming God's word, right? Proclaiming God's word. So here, the fire may not be literal, but we know Elijah was able to do that. Right? So the two witnesses we identified, they were, being, they were being alluded to like they were Moses and Elijah with some of the things that they had done. Here, we get the opposite of the two witnesses. We get the, the false prophet doing some of those same things. He's able to call fire down from heaven. But we know Elijah could do that, right? We know we're very familiar with the story where he does so um, at Mount Carmel where he's battling the, the prophets of Baal. Uh, maybe a less familiar passage in 2 Kings chapter 1. He does this to punish some people. He said, uh, Verse 9, then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Right? Like Elijah was able to call down fire from heaven, not just once, but twice. You skip ahead to Luke chapter 9, when Jesus is talking with his disciples. Luke chapter 9, verse 54 When days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. 
He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him, but the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And James and John had seen enough signs and wonders to to think that that was even plausible for them to be able to call fire down from heaven, right? So will there be literal fire that comes down from heaven at this time? That's very possible. The signs may or may not be literal, though, because like I said, you got the two witnesses breathing fire from their mouth, which we said is probably their preaching and teaching of the word of God. We also see them receiving the breath of life in uh, chapter 11, verse 11, and we see that image receiving the breath of life as well. So I think you have to see some parallels in chapter 11 with chapter 13. Is it spiritual or is it literal? This image uh, in Revelation 13 does hopefully conjure up images of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they encountered Nebuchadnezzar and his image, right? In that scene, you have to bow down and worship that image of Nebuchadnezzar when the music plays. If you don't, you'll be cast into fire, right? You get, you get the fiery furnace. I think what's important to think in here is that everything that Satan does in this chapter, he's, he's duplicating it. He, he's replicating what's already been done by God. Nothing new here, right? Like if, if this were to happen tomorrow, like we turn on Fox News or CNN and we start seeing this happening before our eyes, some great religious leader standing before us and, and being able to call fire down from heaven, being able to, to make a, a wooden or golden image talk and walk and, and act. I mean, if that happened, we ought to be so deep in our understanding of God's word that we would say, that's happened before. That's what's happened before. Even if a great governmental leader were to be killed and to come back to life, that's happened before. Like, this, this isn't, you haven't done anything different. You haven't done anything different here, right? Like, that's, that's what, that's what the, the Pharaoh uh, group could do. They could do what Moses was doing. You know what they couldn't do? They couldn't turn bloody water into clear water, right? Like, all they could do was turn the, the, the clear water into bloody water, and Moses is like, thanks for the help, right? Like, like, that's what I was trying to do here. Thanks for helping me out, right? They couldn't do anything different than what had already been done. They couldn't counteract anything that had already been done. That's, that's the clear thing here, I think, in Revelation 13 is that the great deception, the great power, the great signs, the great wonders, Jesus and his people have already done all those things. So don't be deceived by it. Don't follow after it. Don't get enamored with it as though something new has come upon the scene. It's all old news. It's important to note that while maybe literal fire is called down from here, it's not the last fire that will be called down. Revelation chapter 20, verse 9 Satan's people marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. They're tormented day and night forever and ever. Man, don't, don't, don't follow after the first fire that comes down from heaven. Make sure that you're around to see the second fire that extinguishes this movement, right? Um, I think probably the idea that, that's being captured here is that there's more attention being given to the experience than the actual message. There's really no substance to what's being believed here, right? Remember, uh, the Pharisees were always asking Jesus, do something, do something and impress us, right? Like, make, do a sign, do a wonder. That's what we want to see. Please stop teaching us and do something spectacular. Jesus is like, I'm not going to do that. Like, I'm, I'm teaching you. Like, this is what you need. You know what the false prophet and the Antichrist do? They say, yes, please come, and we've got signs and wonders for you. We don't have much of a message, right? We don't have any substance to what we've got here, but you should worship us because we can do signs and wonders. Man, that, that's, that's, that's an appeal to the experience. It's an appeal to the experience. Man, that's, what, that's what attracts people to churches today, and, and that's what, what causes people to leave churches oftentimes is, man, I'm not getting, I'm not getting the, the emotional feel in my church service. I don't get the emotional feel from the worship or from the message, right? Like, like that's what's happening here. It's, it's man, this, this is going to be so attractive to these people. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be so appealing to the senses. They're not going to really care what the message is. It's, it's, all the, it's all the hoopla that goes around with it that's so impressive to them. That's what keeps them coming back. Ultimately, the deception sets in because these people failed to love the truth. Right? Like, don't, don't feel sorry for these people in the sense of, man, these people didn't know any better. Because 2 Thessalonians 2, probably a more literal understanding of what's happening in Revelation 13, 
the coming of the lawless ones by the activity of Satan with all power, false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Why do they get deceived? Because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. These people are deceived because they rejected God's truth. That's why they're subjected to this deception. Revelation chapter 9. Remember, we just talked about this. God brings all these warning signs of judgment to draw them to repentance. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, and stone, and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of the murderers or the murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. These are people that will not repent. These are people that don't want Jesus. And so this deception is something that they're prone to embrace. All right? Number two, and we'll wrap up here real quick. Not only should we beware that Satan wants to create deception to steal worship, beware that Satan wants to impose hardship to mandate worship. Satan wants to impose hardship to mandate worship. Right? Like, like if I can't trick you, and if I can't entice you with my message, well, now I got to get dirty with you. Now, now I'm going to have to just, I'm just going to have to apply some pressure to you. Right? Like, think back to that throne room scene, Return of the Jedi. Here's my pitch. Oh, you're not interested in coming to the dark side? Well, now I'm just going to hurt you. I'm going to hurt you and try to beat you into submission if that's what I have to do. That's, what the, that's where the thing turns here at the end of Revelation 13, right? Like we've got our magician show, we've got our signs and our wonders, and for a lot of people, that's sufficient. Yeah, 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 give us more of that. We'll come and do whatever you want. Give us more of that. Those that resist, Satan's not content with them resisting, right? Like now, let's see if we can't impose hardship upon these people and mandate that they worship us. For our kids, Satan wants to hurt us, so we will worship him. Satan starts with that false teaching. He ends with persecution in hopes of scaring the world to serve him. If I can't entice you and deceive you with my false teaching, then I will persecute you in hopes of scaring you so that you want to worship me. Number one, the land beast will present obedience as the only way to eat. Are we ready to suffer? Revelation 13 You've got to worship this image. And then if you want to buy, sell, and trade, you've got to take this mark. Mark on the right hand of the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Land beast will present obedience as the only way to eat. We already know from Revelation that economic persecution against the church was already in existence. Remember Revelation 2.9, that if they didn't join these trade guilds, they couldn't really, they couldn't really buy and sell. Um, we also know that economic issues were promised to increase, right? If we jump back to Revelation chapter 6, verse 5, when those four horsemen come riding out, he opened the third seal. I heard the third living creature say, come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. This rider had a pair of scales in his hands. I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. Right? Like there's famine that's setting in, there's hardship that's setting in. The only way to get food is to give submission to the beast. Right? Like that, that's the picture here. Like you have to be obedient to eat, or at least that's what we were told to believe. Right? But what's the message of Scripture? I mean, the question is do we believe that the government is the provider of our daily needs? What did Jesus tell his disciples? Right? He tells his disciples all the time don't worry about what you're going to eat tomorrow, don't worry about what you're going to wear, don't worry about where you're going to put your head. He says, I take care of all those things. Will we yield to the pressure of believing that the government's the provider of those things? If we're ever put in the context where the government says, worship us, or you can't eat, man, a lot of people will will buckle under that pressure. Because in their minds, the only way to eat is for the government to make that available to me. And if the government takes that away from me, then how am I supposed to eat? It's easy for us to think in the context of how we would resist that. But put kids into that situation now where I'm responsible not just for feeding myself, but for feeding my kids. Will I, will I yield to the pressure of believing that the government is what provides food for my children? Or will I trust in my Savior who takes care of me just like he takes care of the lilies of the field? He takes care of the ravens and the sparrows? Right? Like that's where we have to decide. Are we going to be deceived into thinking that the government, the empire, 
is what saves the galaxy, that saves the world, or we believe, no, no, that's not the case. Jesus is the one who provides for me, right? The land beast will try to trick us into thinking that obedience is necessary to eat. We have to be prepared to suffer through that. Number two, the land beast will present worship as the only way to live. Are we ready to die? Right, when this, when this image comes to life, which may or may not happen the way that it's written, he causes those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. The message here is if you don't redirect your worship, you'll be killed. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in a similar situation and they stood strong. Here's what I love about those three boys back in Daniel, chapter 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Like, don't mistakenly think these boys believed they were going to be saved from this. They went to the fiery furnace believing they may die in that fire. Right? They said, it really doesn't matter. God can save us. He's fully capable of doing so, or he may not save us. But bottom line is we're not worshiping your image. We're not going to yield to you. We're not going to give in to the pressure. Land beasts will try to trick us into thinking that the only way to live is to worship him. We know throughout all of Revelation that the real way to live is to die, right? And that's when we experience eternal life, okay? So we need to be aware that Satan wants to create deception, and he's going to impose hardship to try to gain our worship. The application for us, number one, we must be prepared for the worst deception possible and the worst persecution possible by identifying false teachers through their message and their fruit. We must be prepared for the worst deception possible and the worst persecution possible by identifying false teachers through their message and their fruit. Whatever this looks like, I think it'll be the worst deception that the world's ever seen. Um... 2 Thessalonians 2 alludes to that. Man, Paul even, you know, Paul says in Galatians 1, he says, even if an angel sits down with you and tries to tell you a different gospel, don't listen. We read over that and we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, think about that. Like if an angel showed up in your presence and said, I got some new information for you, it would take a lot of resolve to say, nah, I'm not going to listen to that. Like a supernatural visitor shows up with a message from God, man, that that, that, that would be hard potentially to resist that right? So, so what we need to be prepared for is, is things even greater than that, deception even greater than that that could potentially set in, and then persecution that may even be worse than the fiery furnace. Like, take a minute this week and really put yourself in a position to think and put yourself in the spot of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that, that everybody's lined up that doesn't want to worship the beast, and you're given one last option. Hey, if you'll just go bow down over there, you don't die. If you won't bow down, we're about to push you in. Like, picture yourself in line. Picture yourself feeling the heat from that fire. Do you say the same thing as, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Hey, it doesn't matter if God saves us or doesn't save us. We're not worshiping that. Like, we're willing to jump in. We're, we're willing to die in this fire. Like, there's that much resolve. There's that much commitment to what God's word says that we will die in this. We can identify their message. First John 4 tells us what the message is. It's anything that deters us from the, the true theology of Jesus. Matthew 7, Jesus goes on to say, you want to know false teachers? Look at their fruit. Look at the fruit of their message and where their ministries end up. Right? False teachers don't stick around real long, typically. Right? Like, like we talked about Rob Bell earlier. Rob Bell's basically off the scene from the church culture and is now kind of slithered into to a different different even type audience, right? Like he's touring around with Oprah Winfrey, right? Like, like he, he slithered off into a different area to, to, to wreak havoc with his teaching. He was in the church, came out of the church, and eventually, finally, somebody said, this is too far gone to even be remotely a part of the church and, and removed him from that setting. Now he's found a different audience. False teachers don't stick around too long because eventually their fruit is shown, right? They either fall morally 
or eventually their teaching gets so wandered off, they deceive so many, but finally somebody steps up and says, wow, the, the light is now gone. Now we see how dark it is, and they're able to be removed. Look at their message. Look at their fruit. 2 Timothy 3, we looked at it last week. It reminds us, right, reminds us to, to battle false teaching by knowing the true message and knowing the true people that have given us that message. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Um, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it. And don't trust the new stuff that shows up. Trust the old stuff, right? Trust the old stuff and know that anything that new shows up is just being replicated. It's just replicating things that have already been, been happening, all right? Last, last application for us. We must not let the false church do a better job of spreading a false message than we do with a true message. Right? Like I told you earlier, these guys are replicating what the church is supposed to be doing, right? Like the master of the false prophet gives him power to talk about the resurrection of his master and does signs and wonders when necessary to draw people's attention to it. That's what we do, right? Like our master has empowered us with the Holy Spirit to talk about the resurrection. Man, God forbid that anybody in our family or at work will hear about a resurrection of a governmental leader and think that's the first time that's ever happened. Man, if we haven't populated the message of Christ coming back, then this will be a, a situation of awe and wonder. Man, it's the first time we've really ever heard about this. Man, we have a responsibility to preach the message of Jesus and his resurrection, knowing that God will do the work necessary to, to, to make that a believable message to those that hear it from us. And we have, a, we have a responsibility to set people up for success when this great deception comes not by being silent and allowing them to fall into failure because they've never heard the other side. Family worship questions this week. Number one, read the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with your kids. Talk about the boy's bravery and it not being tied to God necessarily saving them. It's a great story. It's a great story to relate to our kids. It's a great story to relate to our kids in relationship to Revelation, knowing that, hey, there may be coming a day where this gets reenacted, right? And we actually play the part of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that despite a lot of questions and a lot of uncertainty that surrounds this chapter, that we can pull and draw some really clear things out of it. God, I'm thankful that no matter what the future holds, no matter what type of governmental leaders are going to rise to power, no matter what type of false prophets and teachers are going to be given a platform, no matter what signs and wonders they may be able to accomplish through satanic power. God, we are grateful and thankful that they can do nothing that you haven't already done yourself. God, we're thankful for the original resurrection, that Jesus came to die and to live so that we could be saved. God, we're thankful that you don't draw us to you through, through lies and deceit, that you don't impose hardships upon us so that we'll will be scared into loving you. God, we're thankful that you draw us through your Holy Spirit, that you awaken us to the goodness of your promises, the goodness of your word. God, I pray that you'd prepare us, help us to be diligent to prepare ourselves so that if we're on this earth, when this great deception comes, that we are, we are adequately prepared to identify it and to not yield to it. God, help us to realize that even leading up to this, that our employer isn't what feeds us. Our, our, our place of work isn't what takes care of us. God, we're a part of your family, and we know that you care for your children and that you take care of us. God, help us to never believe the lie that any earthly institute is what we should give credit for our life to. God, we also know that there's no human institution that can take our life from us without your will. That, that you have a number of martyrs that you're waiting upon and you know exactly the number, you know exactly the list. So God, help us to be encouraged and help us to see through that deception that there's, there's no force, there's no power that could ever arise that has any control over us. God, protect us from that coming deception. God, help us to be propagators of truth 
before that deception sets in. Help us to see that we've been empowered by your Holy Spirit and that we have a message of resurrection to communicate and that many signs and wonders have already been done to validate that message. God, help us to be faithful with that. And God, I pray that you'd prepare us, prepare our children to not be tricked and that when hardships are imposed upon us that we would not yield. We want to be able to suffer. We want to be able to die if necessary to show our allegiance to you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.